Hi, and welcome back to The Core. My name is Nick Mombello, and each week I bring you conversations with inspiring people who can add value to the world and who I think we can learn from in order to be better than we were the day before. This week I have Diana Rogers on the show. Diana is a real food nutritionist and writer living and working on an organic farm. She runs a clinical nutrition practice, hosts the Sustainable Dish podcast, and speaks internationally about human nutrition, sustainability, animal animal welfare, and social justice. Her latest book and film co-authored with Rob Wolf is The Sacred Cow, The Nutritional, Environmental, and Ethical Case for Better Meat. I had a really amazing conversation with Diana about her new book, Sacred Cow, and how better meat practices can be beneficial to the environment, are essential for our health, and the ecosystem we share with the planet. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. It is the second food episode in a row. I apologize. However, I think her message is really important, and I'm so excited to help support her book that comes out on July 14th. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Good morning, Diana. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really grateful to have you here, and I've been following your stuff on Sustainable Dish for a few years now. Um, Just thank you for being here, and welcome to the core. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. On the show, I like to dive into people's backgrounds because I think it tells us a lot about who they are and how they got to where they are today. Could you dive into your background a little bit and what was life like growing up and how did you become now the author of your new book, Sacred Cow? Sure. Um, I will try not to fill up your whole hour because it was a sort of uh, very organic route. Um, Let's see. As a kid, I was really sick. um, And my doctor in my small town told my mom I had a lactose intolerance. And so I've actually never had a glass of milk in my life because... we thought that that's what was making me so sick. Um, I was really underweight. I had some learning disabilities in school, problems reading, paying attention, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I was 26 that I found out I had celiac disease. Um, and that answered a lot of questions. Um, but when I went to the dietitian and um, learned about the gluten-free diet, first of all, I thought, how can humans possibly ever be allergic to wheat? Like what? I must be an alien or something because that's what that's what I ate like for yeah. every meal, you know? Um, and so anyway, I, I had a weekend with wheat with all my favorite wheat things. And I never, I've never eaten wheat or gluten intentionally since. <laughs> and, um, and it sort of fixed things, but, um, you know, the dietitian just gave me a bunch of coupons to like a whole bunch of gluten-free processed foods. And, um, and actually my job um, a couple years later was actually working for Whole Foods, approving all the gluten-free products that were coming into the stores in my region. And um, so I would, you know, test the gluten-free pizza and tell them if it was like better or worse than the other gluten-free pizzas and whether or not we should carry it and everything. Um, and I just was having these crazy blood sugar swings and thought for sure I was diabetic. Um, in my first pregnancy, I actually was positive for gestational diabetes Um, and that's when I first started counting my carbs. And, uh, so at the time they told me to just eat 30 grams of carbs per meal. And I just like, this is torture. This is even worse than going gluten-free. Like how do people only eat 30 grams of carbs at a meal? This is insane. Um, and now I eat like 30 grams a day practically. Uh Um, 
but anyway, so I, so it's a very, been a very long route for me to, to get to where I am. Um, my second pregnancy, I had learned a little bit more about Weston A. Price. So tangentially, you know, during this time, um, I married my high school sweetheart who, um, or my college sweetheart who, um, ended up becoming an organic farmer. And so we're living on this farm, we're hosting this raw milk co-op and I'm like, who are these crazy people coming in for butter and raw milk? And what's this all about? And then I went to a Weston A. Price conference and started eating more fat and, um, didn't have gestational diabetes with my second pregnancy mm-hmm. and, um, started learning more, decided I wanted to be become a nutritionist. I've always been interested in it and I just wanted a career change. And so um, I went to the NTA program, Nutritional Therapy Association, um, and became a nutritional therapy uh, practitioner Mm -hmm. and um, read this book towards the end of my course called The Paleo Solution and decided to give it a try. And I hate sweet potatoes. And so I didn't do any of the like carbs because I don't like, I just don't, like them very much. Mm-hmm. And so I basically did like a keto intro and that fixed everything for me. Um, so today I'm not necessarily keto all the time, but I do think that, you know, that like keto en- entry into it was really helpful. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up becoming friends with Rob Wolf and he's always been very interested in sustainability and farming. And so we, um, have been talking for a long time about doing a book together on sustainability and how, you know, if you apply this ancestral template of eating in a paleo evolutionary biology kind of way, it actually, if you apply that to farming, that's regenerative agriculture. And that's how we can fix all the problems of industrial agriculture in our industrial food system. You know, if we just get rid of industrial ag and industrial processed foods, Bingo, you know? And so, um, so I kept nagging him for a long time to like, let's get on this book. Let's get on this book. And he's like, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. Um, and so it's couldn't be better timing right now. I think, especially with COVID because, um, you know, we're seeing problems, we're seeing fractures in the meat, um, system right now. Um, you know, I noticed that as people were talking about nutrition and sustainability and healthy eating, it's just vegetarian and vegan all the time, all the time. Um, and so as a dietitian, this is kind of blasphemy for me to be saying that actually eating meat could be both healthy and environmental. And I'm saying we could probably feed the world this way. And I'm saying it's ethical. Um, so all of those things together, there, there really aren't any books or films or anything. Um, and so we've got the book coming out, uh, July 14th, mm-hmm. uh, it's called sacred cow. And, um, and actually if people pre-order it, they can get access to, uh, a, we just are announcing this now a, um, preview link to the film. So we're actually offering the film to anyone who oh, wow. pre-orders the book. Um, and, uh, and then we have a bunch of other great stuff too, some interviews and, and, uh, goodies and things like that. And then Rob and I also, um, have created a course called meat curious and it's for people who are, you know, maybe ex vegan or vegetarian, or maybe they've cut down on meat or just worried about ethical sourcing or, you know, any, any number of concerns about meat. There's a lot. Mm -hmm. And so we actually created a nine module course that walks you through all of the common issues around meat. And we address all of them head on and, um, special bonus section for, uh, 
ex-vegans and vegetarians on, you know, like how to navigate your social life uh, yeah. now that you have, you know, a lot of your friends might be pretty angry at you, things like that, things that are unique to leaving mm -hmm. the, the vegetarian and vegan movement. And I think the message that you have is just so important, especially with all the struggles we've had with the meat industry, food industry around COVID. I think mm -hmm. the timing of everything for you is really in your favor. Yeah, I mean, gosh, I'm, you know, I do have a couple of friends that launched books right in March uh -huh. and, you know, everyone was just glued to the news at that point. Yeah. And um, so we were really scared. We talked to the publisher about pushing back the publication date. But then I noticed that our CSA, our vegetable and meat CSA sold out like for the whole year, like week two of, of you know, sequestration yeah. in, in COVID. Um, and everyone I know who uh, is a farmer that sells direct to customers, they're all sold out for the rest of the year, too. I mean, we're booking dates at the slaughterhouse for 2021, like animals that aren't even born yet are booked. <laughs> um, and uh, his seed companies have had to shut down like Johnny Seeds is only honoring orders from the farmers now. They're not doing consumer orders because everyone's gardening. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, now that... Um, the news has kind of died down a little bit and people are getting used to this and uh, gardening and, and growing your own food. That's actually the number one hobby of Americans. That's and incredible. so um, I actually, I think it is amazing timing. People have a little extra time to read. They're questioning where their food's coming from and they're questioning the whole system right now. I mean, even with all the polarization that we see with, protests and left and right. I mean, what we're trying to say in the book is that it's the debate is not black and white. It's not meat versus no meat. That's we actually have a lot of the same concerns that um, vegans and vegetarians have. I'm on the board of Animal Welfare Approved. Um, I'm very concerned about the ethical treatment of animals. Um, we talk a lot in the ethics section about things like least harm and intent and sentience um, and what we, I mean, at, at the end of every chapter, nutrition, environment, ethics, it all comes down to, you know, raising animals on land we can't grow crops on to yeah. produce nutrient-dense food for humans in a way that mimics nature. Um, so not that there's no room for vegetables in the diet or, you know, an occasional treat or something like that. We do have a 30 day Nutrivore challenge at the end. Um, then we've taken all the emotion completely out of it. And we actually challenge people to just get as much, um, micronutrients as possible. How do you maximize all your vitamins and minerals? Yeah. Um, and you know, it's, it's pretty interesting because if you, if you just do it based on that, it ends up being the most sustainable diet, um, that, you know, can be grown and, and the healthiest diet for humans. That, I mean, it's just incredible everything that you can do with both meat and vegetables and combining the two for the healthiest lifestyle, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to first dive into the dedication of your book. And I think it's very relevant now uh, for our children. May they steward this world better than those who came before them. And I think it I don't want to assume, but it almost has more relevance now within the past couple of weeks than it did possibly when you wrote it. What was the inspiration behind the dedication? Yeah, I mean, um, I, Rob and I were both thinking the same exact thing before we even said like, hey, why don't we just dedicate this to our children and everyone's 
everyone's future, right? Yeah. Um, and so it was just a no brainer to do that. Um, you know, that once you become old, like Rob and I are, <laughs> um, you know, so we're both in our late forties, actually, he might've turned 50 recently. Um, but anyway, there's just, you know, like once you've saved yourself with, you know, a healthy diet, um, what are you going to do next? And so, you know, this is our big, our big stamp on yeah. our big legacy that we want to leave. And we really hope it makes a major difference. Um, and yeah, I think it's more relevant now than ever. And I also, you know, it's really interesting, um, right before we get into our Nutrivore challenge, we have a whole list of things that people can do to be more sustainable, just like in society, uh, that have nothing to do with how they eat. Um, and as I was writing our course and kind of revisiting what we wrote in the book, I actually sent it to Rob and I was like, oh my God, look at what we wrote. Like this, you know, so one of them is, uh, don't get yourself into financial debt. Mm -hmm. You know, like that has nothing to do with food, but wow, you know, especially for something like this. And Rob and I are both, um, we have a lot in common, but one thing in particular is we're both kind of preppers a little bit. Like we're always just kind of like when shit hits the fan, like what are we going to, you know, <laughs> what yeah. are we going to do? Um, and so we both kind of were headed into COVID like prepared um, for that. Um so there's that, um, keeping your body healthy so that you're not a burden on our healthcare system. You're not a burden on other people. Um, you know, all, all of these things are part of being, um, a sustainable contributing member to society so that you're not overwhelming the system by your presence. Right. Yeah. Um, so that you're actually making, uh, you're making things better, not worse for other people. Um, we talk about, uh, if you, um, if you can to go work on a farm for a little bit or volunteer on a farm, or maybe you don't have the ability to, or time to, but maybe you can design websites, you could make a, a website for the farm. So there's so many ways people can get closer to food production. Yeah. And if it's all right with you, I kind of broke down the conversation by the different parts of okay. your book mm -hmm. and to start. The, just the nutritional case for better meat. What do you see the biologically appropriate diet for humans is? I know there's a lot of different information out there. How can we mm -hmm. simplify the biological diet? Well, humans are omnivores. Humans have been eating meat for about three and a half million years. Um, unfortunately, meat is being blamed as the cause of diabetes and cancer and heart disease and obesity. But, um, you know, it's far more likely that modern food created these modern issues that we're having and not something that we've been eating for a very, very long time. Um, and so we kind of walk through in the nutrition section, um, the reason why humans are omnivores, yeah. um, how supplements really aren't optimal. Um, <clears throat> We go through the studies criticizing meat and talk about why observational studies can't prove cause. And then we talk about all the nutrients in meat that you can't get from plants or, or are difficult to get from plants and why uh -huh. animal sources are ideal for almost all of our nutrients. Um, we, you know, we definitely do recommend if you are a healthy person that can handle it to eat um, vegetables, you know, plant materials too. Although I think, um, you know, our grain intake and fruit intake is a little high. And, um, and so we're, we're much more focused on, on vegetables as, as the main plant intake. Um, yeah. I remember, and that goes into the whole education piece of it. 
we were taught the food pyramid in school. I remember sitting in fifth grade, I think, and the bottom section is grains. Mm-hmm. I was like, that means I get to eat pasta all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's just not the case, but it's what we've been taught. And why over the past couple of decades, saturated fat specifically has been kind of demonized. Why, why is that been? Uh, well, the saturated fat being demonized really came from Ansel Keys, um, who wrote um, a study really looking, it was an observational study that can't prove cause. So he looked at a bunch of different countries and found that, um, oh, look, the, these these countries have high rates of heart disease, and therefore it must be um, the fat that they eat in their diet. And um, the problem is you just can't make those leaps. Um, I could tell you that um, you're much more likely to get eaten by a shark on a warm day, but that doesn't mean that a warm day caused the shark attack um, or that sharks caused the warm day, right? And so... Um, so we kind of talk about that in the book, but now, now that fat is sort of back on the table, meat is worse than fat could have ever been because it's also being blamed as bad for the environment and unethical to kill beautiful animals. And so it's got this sort of three pronged, um, attack on it unfairly. And so we actually call, call meat the scapegoat for, for that. And, um, that was actually an alternative title for the book was scapegoat. Okay. And why is it the scapegoat? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Um, Meat is very symbolic. It's the most powerful food in our culture. It represents wealth and death and power and class struggle. Um, And it's uh, masculine. It's bloody. Um, There's a lot. Meat holds a lot of power uh, to humans. And, um, you know, it's something that uh, typically women have been told not to eat too much of. Uh, so when I, ha- when I have a nutrition client, um, I, I don't think I mentioned I'm a dietitian now, but, uh, when I have a nutrition client, um, if it's a man and I say, you know, I want you to eat more steak, they just run. They're like, I can't even finish the sentence. They're running out the door to go get some steak. But if I tell a woman to eat steak, I have to explain to her for like 45 minutes why yeah. that she needs to be eating more. Um, people are just not eating enough protein in my opinion, um, or getting enough, um, of the, of the nutrients like iron and B12 that they need from animal products. And especially in organ meats, liver, heart, all those definitely have much better nutrient density than any plant out there. Right. Exactly. Could we dive into the environmental case for better meat? What what role do animals play in supporting the environment? So most of our agricultural land is actually only suited towards grazing, not towards plowing up and planting corn and wheat. And once we can understand that most most land is either too rocky, too dry, the soil isn't good enough, um, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of reasons why land would not be ideal for growing crops. You know, it's hard as Americans because when you fly over the country, you look down it's pretty much all cropland, but that yeah. land has only been able to be farmed the way it is because of pooping bison running across uh, the Great Plains and and the Midwest. And so, um, what we're doing with our industrial ag, with our chemical ag, is actually ruining topsoil. And what well managed cattle can do is actually build topsoil back again. Yeah. And so, if we manage them in the way that wild herds 
are man are you know naturally managed. So if we if we move them frequently and not keep them on one paddock for the entire season, if they're moved frequently, they allow the grass to have a rest so that it's not overgrazed. Um, it, when the roots grow back, they actually um, that's when the carbon can be sequestered in the in the ground, which um, the more carbon you have, the more life you have underground, the more water holding capacity the land has. So when it rains, it'll actually soak up the water like a sponge instead of running off, like is what, sure. what happens in cropping. So um, in your typical cornfield, uh, when it rains, there's so much exposed dirt that the dirt just goes with the water and it goes straight into our waterways, clouding them up with soil, um, but then also taking with it all the chemicals. So it's, it's just, you know, creating major dead zones and things like that. Um, and so with regenerative agriculture, when you're working, you know, in the cycles of nature, there are no vegan ecosystems. There's no ecosystems that just have plants. All mm -hmm. ecosystems have a big mix of animals and plants. And so that's what you find on a regenerative farm is a, is a, as much, diversity in plant and animal life is possible. And can you touch on soil health? Why, why is soil health important for the planet as opposed to monocropping just corn over and over again? What does that do to the soil and then eventually our food system? Yeah, I mean, it eventually would turn it into a desert. Um, so, so the, the more you basically rape the land and just use chemical inputs instead of biological inputs. So instead of using animal manure, um, and in organic farming, we also use fish meal, like ground up fish. I live near Boston. And so we, um, there's a, there's a company Neptune's harvest that uses, um, fish, uh, fish guts and stuff like that. And they grind it up and make it into this emulsion that we spray on the plants. And it's so nutrient dense to the plants. Um, you actually need animal inputs like blood meal or bone meal or animal manure in order to grow healthy plants. Um, so in traditional monocropping agriculture, like what's happening today, um, they're not doing that. They're just using, uh, chemicals and um, eventually the land just becomes more and more degraded and after not too long, completely unusable. Yeah. And I don't, I think that's something that hasn't been told. People don't know, or I guess they do know, but people don't understand that you need that animal input into the soil to build and grow better crops in the future. Mm -hmm. That's right. So... I know it's a very charged topic, but you get into the morality of eating animals and why in your eyes is it actually moral to have animals in the food system? So um, there's this thing called the principle of least harm, which I think is quite noble. You know, people who are ethically opposed to killing animals, what they're trying to do is just cause least harm. So there's, there's no way to cause no harm um, yeah. because even in organic agriculture, even just to make a field for your organic lettuce or broccoli, you still have to annihilate everything that was there before. So there's no natural fields of broccoli in nature. So you have to either cut down a forest or, you know, clear a prairie. And so you have to eliminate all the life that was there before. The habitat for any of those animals is now gone. Um, and then even in organic agriculture, there's things like tractors, there's organic pesticides and herbicides. Um, and, uh, and then when we move into conventional agriculture, those chemicals and pesticides are destroying our pollinator population, which then the birds have no food. 
Um, and it just trickles into everything, killing our fish in the waterways. Uh, and so it's just massively destructive. So when you look at um, a diet that would actually cause the least amount of death, it would actually look a lot more like regenerative agriculture. And so, uh, you know, one one steer can provide almost 500 pounds of meat. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a lot of food. Um, and that's one life that actually was part of a system that created life and attracted more life, but just by being there. Yeah. Um, so when you compare one large ruminant, like a bison or a, a, a cow, something like that to, you know, a diet of, you know, tofu and beans and rice and lots and lots of, um, you know, poorly managed vegetables, the diet of least harm actually looks a lot more like regenerative agriculture than it does look like a standard vegan diet. Yeah. And so I, I was having this conversation with my brother last night, actually, and he is, he's a vegan and we were talking about least harm to the environment and what that looks like. I recently bought a quarter cow from a farm an hour away and we were talking how for me to get that cow or for me to get that meat, it took me an hour, hour plus to drive there, hour plus to drive back. So one trip and then whatever it costs to raise the animal as opposed to getting avocados from Mexico or bananas from wherever the carbon footprint on shipping those alone is far, far more than just getting um a cow from an hour away. Yes. What, what is the, I guess, solution moving forward? Like what can we do? So, um, I mean, you brought up a really good point and, um, you know, some people do live near avocado land. And so that's great. If you want to eat avocados there. Um, I just got off a podcast with, um, I had mentioned John Venus. And so he's a pretty influential, um, ex vegan blogger that just explained to me why he's no longer vegan. Um, he's currently living in Norway. Okay. You can't be a local vegan in Norway. Absolutely not. Um, you know, the the diet, the appropriate diet in Norway is lots and lots of fish and um, animals that you would hunt like deer and, um, you know, things that graze uh, yeah. that can survive w- very cold winters. And so I think that the solution looks really different depending on where you are. Um, we have interns on our farm that are from Peru um, and a lot of them grew up without refrigeration. And so getting a quarter cow for them is probably not a great idea because they can't store that. Um, sure. Also, there's just not a lot of grass there for cattle to finish on, mm-hmm. but uh, they eat a ton of guinea pigs and they love it. And it's like always like when I ask them, what's the meal you're dying to have? What do you miss from home? It, they say guinea pig, definitely. And so it's just like for them, <laughs> no refrigeration. It's a one meal kind of situation. Um, they thrive in that area. And so I, I just think, you know, it's camels in some area, it's goats in some areas. Um, it might be Guinea pigs in Peru. Uh, so it really just depends on what your region can, um, support. And again, what we're seeing with COVID is the dangers of having five companies in charge of our entire meat supply. 
Mm-hmm. And what we need is more resilient systems, and that is more regional food systems and less centralized systems. So, um, you know, I, I truly believe centralized most things are bad, and regional solutions are generally a better way to go in 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 political terms and in in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, context specific. Do you do you think it's possible to be regional for everyone? based on the vast population that we have? Well, I mean, if you're talking about Saudi Arabia, where, you know, it's high desert everywhere, um, you know, I, I think that humans have encroached unnaturally in places where humans probably shouldn't be thriving. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a complicated, loaded question that, um, yeah. you know, nobody can really talk about uh, overpopulation, right? That's like a third wheel that no one, no one can talk about. Uh, so are there too many humans? Yes. Um, but, uh, do we have a problem with producing food right now? No, we don't. We actually produce way more food than we need. We waste a ton of food. Um, and our issue isn't calorie production, it's nutrient production. So we're producing tons and tons of human feed of, of grain. Um, but what we're not doing is producing nutrient dense food for humans to actually thrive. Um, and that's why we have diabetes and obesity and heart disease and, all these people living way longer than they probably should, um, you know, being supported by the pharmaceutical industry and um, a very greedy healthcare industry. And so um, for those of us who are much more into preventative, uh, optimal health and thriving without needing to take a lot of pills in order for that to happen, um, you know, that that's a whole different mindset. And um, that's what I believe the world should look like. Sure. And I think you said in the book, this is the first time in history that people are overfed, but undernourished. Yes. Yeah. And um, our height is actually going down now. Um, Really? Yeah. And so height is a measure of long-term nutritional status. Um, And yeah, uh, average height is actually going down among, among humans in America now. Wow. Is there anything that you do on a day-to-day basis to ensure that you're better than you were the day before? Oh my gosh, you're asking me right now and I'm in total survival mode and like (laughs) I've been having crazy insomnia. Um, So no, at the moment I am, I'm pushing out a book and a film. Um, And I have two teenagers uh, that are homeschooled right now, and it's the busiest time of the year of the farm. So that's not a great question to ask me at the moment. (laughs) Um, But I try, I go for a big, huge walk every morning to get sun. Um, I move a lot. Um, I'm on point with my diet. I eat a ton of animal protein. Um, Try not to eat, uh, you know, I'm very sensitive to carbohydrates. So I, you know, when I do eat carbs, uh, it tends to be just a little bit of potato or rice or something like that or a piece of fruit. Yeah. Um, So, so even during this time when I'm super stressed out, I'm not, you know, drinking a ton or uh, going off the wheels with diet or something like that. I'm still moving and I'm still eating well. Mm -hmm. I think the power of walking even in the morning just to set your circadian rhythms yeah. to be able to sleep 15, 12, whatever hours later is really important just for overall health and being able to sustain whatever you, it is that you're doing mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Yeah. So I would like to end with a quote from your book that I really enjoyed. It is, 
We need to shift from seeing ourselves as separate from and above nature to seeing ourselves as being or as beings participating with and loving our planet, not just because what it can provide to us, but because the world in itself is a magnificent and complex place. I really enjoyed that quote and thought it was just a really beautiful synopsis of the whole book. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I think um, I think that was something Rob and I came up with and we kind of wordsmith that one together. Um, yeah. yeah. So we truly believe that. And, um, you know, I really appreciate your support with um, with getting this out there. And um, thank you. Of course. Where can people find you if they want to learn more <laughs> and where will they be able to buy the book once it's available? So uh, the book is now available for pre-order on Amazon or your favorite online bookseller. All you need to do to claim your bonuses, including uh, a preview link to the film, would be to go to sacredcow.info forward slash book. And we have a link there where you can just submit your receipt. Um, uh, and that all ends on uh, July 14th. So we're pulling that. Um, and uh, But sacredcow.info is our website. And um, I'm on uh, Instagram at Sustainable Dish. Okay. I'll, I'll leave a link to those in the show notes so people can find them. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Diana. If you haven't already, please leave a rating or review on iTunes and consider subscribing so you don't miss an episode. And then tune in next week for a really special and important conversation I had with an old classmate of mine, Caleb Tiverti. Um, couldn't have been happier with the conversation that I had with him today. So... I think you'll really enjoy it and find value from it next Thursday. So thank you for tuning in and I will see you next week.